Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by sommelier Taylor Burke. She's a former chef. She actually spent some time in kind of the Carolinas. She worked the Food and Wine Festival uh, in Charleston for a couple years. Had a stint as a kind of a private in-home chef. Um, worked for some people in New York City. Uh, and then wound up kind of out in California. And she's the other half of the Lucky Cricket pop-up um, that she does with Chef Casey Goff. Uh, we had the pleasure of having Chef Casey Goff on the podcast last year. So check that episode out if you haven't. But Taylor's kind of the other half of that duo. And she talks about how, you know, they first met and, and kind of where they're going to pick back up, you know, kind of where they left off with Lucky Cricket. You know, they basically took kind of the winter off and now they're getting back into the swing of things. So they're going to be doing some more dinners and everything. And and she currently works uh, with Chef Brian Malarkey, who some of you may have know, you know, he had a couple stints, I think, on Top Chef. I think you participated on two different seasons. I think one, his original season, and then maybe like an all-star-y season. Definitely on one that was pretty recent. But he's kind of got a, a few different properties and catering divisions that he has. And, and Taylor was running those. And now she's kind of over the the Chef's Life brand which is different kind of finishing oils, different oils that you can cook with because they react to the temperature different ways. So it's a really interesting episode. Started out as a chef, then kind of got into the wine world and is now kind of doing both and balancing both. And it's pretty awesome to see kind of somebody evolve from that standpoint and also have, you know, just an interesting career and, and the different things that she's taken on. So definitely wanted to have her on the podcast and, and chat with her kind of about all her experiences. So you can follow her on Instagram. It's at Taylor Chloe B, uh, C H L O E B. You can also find at Chef's Life.co on Instagram too, as well. That's kind of where she's doing her stuff. And then also at Lucky Cricket Pop Up on Instagram are kind of the three. She's getting ready to launch her website too, as well, uh, TaylorBurke.com. So make sure to check that out when you get a chance to as well see the different products and stuff that she's working on too. And you can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Twitter, Facebook, we don't release too much, mainly the Instagram. So follow us there. Make sure to follow the podcast, whatever platform that you're using, if you're not already following us, just so you get the latest episode as it comes out. Um, we got a bunch more stuff on the way too as well. You can check out the website. It has some information and contact information for everybody that's been on the podcast too as well. So there's somebody that, you know, you just, for some reason, you know, didn't follow them on Instagram and wanted to go back through and check. All that stuff, you can find them uh, up on the website and in the show notes too. So depending on what platform you use, there's usually show notes we put at the bottom, kind of where you can find everybody and all the businesses that they're associated with at the time that they come on the podcast. So without further delay, here's my conversation with sommelier Taylor Burke over at Lucky Cricket and Chef's Life. Well, well thanks again for agreeing to do this. Come on uh, the podcast here. So you are kind of the other half of Lucky Cricket, Casey Goff, who's been on this podcast before. She's kind of the chef and you're the sommelier uh, end of that. But you also have chef skills of your own, um, which I'm not sure if people really realize. So I want to get to, you know, Lucky Cricket and how you guys came up with that and all that stuff too. But I like to start all the way at the beginning with everybody. So take me through your career. How did you first get started with food and wine? You know, you grew up in St. Augustine, Florida, I think, right? Yeah, that's true. It's not exactly a culinary hub as it is now. And I mean, that's even in perspective to other places in Florida, it might be, but it's certainly come a long way. So I grew up really kind of absorbing things from my grandfather. I've mentioned him before in other interviews. So it's kind of like, he's always the go-to for me. He's a big inspiration. He worked for Seagram 
And he went from basically like salesman to president and going over to my grandparents' house when I was a kid and having my grandmother's food. And my grandpa was always like making me, you know, like I think at the time it was Lambrusco, which is kind of known as like a cheap sparkling red wine. As a kid, that's like very delicious because it's sweet. And now we have like way more, you know, the next versions of that. That's like Psalm crack. But so that's kind of how I got my first taste of like, oh, food and wine go together. And I just loved that food really brings people together. And it's kind of like a party atmosphere, whether it's friends or family. So I didn't go right to culinary school. I ended up going to college because I thought that I had to, right? That's what you have to do. I went to college at College of Charleston in South Carolina which is actually a huge culinary city. And the whole time I was there, I saw myself cooking nonstop and really absorbing the wine scene and the cocktail scene. And then as soon as my time was over at college, I pretty much had made the decision to go ahead and go to Cordon Bleu um, right from there and study pastry because uh, I love baking. That's like number one. Growing up, like, did you work in restaurants at all or anything? Or was it just something that you wanted to be involved in like once you got into college? I did. I started as a host, busser. I bartended. I pretty much did everything that you could, minus managing that came later in life. You went to College of Charleston, like you said, you got like a communications degree. So were you still like when you were going through your kind of bachelor's degree program, were you still like always had one eye on culinary school or what led to you making that shift of like, yeah, this is actually what I want to do. I want to go to culinary school and be involved in food and stuff. Well, I started to feel like, well, you know, first of all, I took communication. Who doesn't take communications because they don't know what they're going to do? No one's like, I'm going to take communications because it's going to like give me this great career. Communications and, you know, sorry, this might offend some people in the PR world, but nobody takes communications and they're like, yeah, this is going to give me a sweet career. I picked it because I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I love food and, and I would figure it out. And what's so funny is, when I was working in restaurants to make money just to live and survive as a college student, I remember thinking like, oh, who would work in a restaurant long term if you didn't have to? At some point, I kind of just hated the hustle and bustle, but was somewhat addicted to it as well. And then it really wasn't until after college that I couldn't stop baking. So were you baking when you were in college and like, if you were in a dorm on your floor or whatever, and people just kind of like, she got cookies today? Like, what's she making? Yeah, it wasn't just that. I'd be making like brioche and like all of these tarts and like trying to make a croquembouche and, you know, like all these different things. I was like, I can make that. Like, why not make that? And it wasn't like, hey, come over. It's like, hey, come over after the bar. I have miniature apple tarts. Like, that's the party. What led you to choosing Le Cordon Bleu? Was it just close, local cost or just because of the pastry program? Like, why did you specifically choose them instead of one of the other, you know, 50 schools that you could have gone to probably. Cordon Bleu has a good reputation. I had always wanted to take French pastry. At the time, I really saw myself being a fine dining pastry chef. So I wanted to go to what I felt was like the mecca of learning techniques. And I actually went to the one in Florida. So it's not as exciting. People are always like, oh, do you go to the one in France? And I would love to lie about that. But I went to the one in Florida. Not as chic, but it did the trick. It definitely taught me a lot of discipline. And I ended up getting a job in fine dining right out of school um, at a restaurant in Florida that was on a golf course wearing the like super tall hat and the cravat. That was a whirlwind too. 
Were you working while you were in pastry school? Were you still working in restaurants too at the same time? I was. I was doing a pastry apprenticeship and I was bartending at night. So I went from school to apprenticeship to bartend to wake up and do it all over again. So I think you're a pretty good alumni company. I'm pretty sure Brian Baxter from the Catbird seat went to the Cordon Bleu in Florida too as well. Because I know he's from Florida and I'm pretty sure he went to that school. Very possible. Culinary school is a really interesting place because something I didn't realize till I got there is you have people that genuinely want to be there. But that's like actually a really small percentage. A lot of people go to culinary school in the same way that some people go to college and they didn't know. You go there, well, at least the one where I went, thinking you're going to like meet all these creatives that are like like-minded. And then you remember that you're in Orlando, Florida, and you're like, wow, this is culture shock. No one cares. It was definitely an interesting place. But the instructors were amazing. And my time there, you know, getting to bake all day. I'll tell you, when we did the breads class, I think that's like my favorite 15 pounds I've ever gained. <laughs> if you're focused on pastry, you make the thing in class, whatever it is, then you have it. So if you made a cake, like you have an entire cake now, like what do you do with that cake? Take it home. And I'll tell you, you know, during some of the slower months, the apprenticeship doesn't really pay and if bartending slow, I would literally just eat what I brought home from pastry and call it a day because not really going grocery shopping on that salary. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? Tiramisu for dinner, the entire pan. Yeah, well, you also have probably like a baked good a day that you're like bringing home. Absolutely. Like 12 croissants at a time. It's living the high life. Based on your experience with culinary school, like if somebody asked you, they're like, hey, I'm super interested in being a chef. I want to be a professional chef one day. I want to open my own restaurant. Do you think I should go to culinary school or do you think I should just work and try and find like really great restaurants to work in and learn from? What would you tell them? Well, I think that maybe I would just ask like what their intent is. I think, and I might be biased here, but I think that it's worthwhile to learn culinary techniques and baking because it's more scientific, whereas cooking is a little bit more nuanced. I think it is easier to learn peer-to-peer, probably catch some heat for that comment. But I do think that learning to cook is easier peer-to-peer than learning to bake. I think there's an aspect of studying involved. You know, I know I utilize my textbooks a lot in order to understand like what happens when you combine two things in the oven and take notes. And so for baking, I think going to culinary school is amazing. But at the end of the day, if you're driven enough, none of it's necessary. You know, I, I always value that time in my life because it taught me extremely hard work ethic. So for that alone, I think it, it was very useful, just kind of like when you go to college, right? Like people go to college, I think everybody should go to college if they can. And it's not about the curriculum. It's about what you go through and the people that you meet in that time. Yeah. It's about like the experience more so than necessarily like the degree. The degree is kind of almost like just a afterthought in a way. Yeah. And also I know Cordon Bleu, they offer grants and I don't think that's highly publicized, but I applied for a grant and I got it, which covered half of my tuition. I always highly encourage if people are interested, like seek out the grants in your area because some people think, oh, I couldn't afford that. But there's definitely things in place to do that. For certain. Yeah. That's not something that ever really comes up on this podcast. It's like, yeah, I applied for a grant. <laughs> got it. I think there's been like a couple people that got like some scholarship money um, to help offset some of this stuff. But that was kind of about it. So when you're working at some of these restaurants while you're kind of going to school and then post school, what was it? about being in the kitchen or on the line that eventually you kind of reach this point where you were kind of over it? So I think for me, and I think things have totally come leaps and bounds since I was in the kitchen because we're talking 10 years ago now, just about in that setting. 
I didn't get a lot of respect as a woman when I was working and my peers were chefs and I was the only one in pastry, running the pastry program, running the line at night, like not only doing my own prep, but also working the line in the evening. I wasn't given the respect that I deserved and the pay was absolutely atrocious. So I, I mean, I'm talking like the, you know, executive like chefy cuisines throwing out my prep just to fuck with me. Things like that, where it's like nobody's being picked on except me. And I'll tell you, like, I'm easy to work with. It was just kind of like, always felt like hazing, you know, and I was over it. And I thought, you know, I'm a hustler. I've always landed on my feet. I bet I can leave this place, charge five times as much and just work for myself. So that's exactly what I did. I started a private chef business where I did pastries um, and I also did in-home private chefing. Yeah. And that kind of took you like to a lot of places, I think, too, like just travel wise. And you got to experience a bunch of stuff, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a great change for me. So I moved back to Charleston. I actually I went on a trip to Charleston knowing that I needed to land a job. So I quit my job at the fine dining restaurant. And again, like, I mean, 20s are just like, I mean, I was just like broke all the time. You know, I'm like job to job and I go to Charleston and I'm like, okay. I have three days in Charleston. I can't leave here until I nail a job. So I met a friend of a friend who is a well-known publisher in the area. And actually, I don't know if I ever told him this story. It's so hilarious if he listens to this podcast. But I convinced him to hire me as his private chef and that he needed me. I convinced him that he needed to eat better. He wanted to reach fitness goals. The only way he was going to do it is if he had a private chef and that I was moving there next month. And that would be a perfect time to start. He went for it, thank God. And I packed up my stuff and I moved in a couple of weeks and I started working as a private chef for this publisher. Over time, branched out to other jobs in the area, word of mouth. I was flying to New York and LA to work with other clients and it was a really fun time. What were your typical like menus that you would create? It really depends. So with the client in Charleston, it was all health focused. So it was all about healthy swaps. And that was something that was really important to me and shifted my mindset when I was working pastry because I was seeing pounds and pounds of bleached white sugar being put into things, bleached flour. And, you know, I think that things can be delicious without being processed. So this first client was kind of like my test on how many, how healthy can I make this meal without anyone noticing? So that's exactly what I did with him. And, you know, just doing clean proteins and not even necessarily like any fad diet, like not like keto or anything like that, but just doing really well-sourced proteins, local well-sourced vegetables, letting the ingredients shine, minimal ingredients, marinades, vinaigrettes, that kind of thing. Almost like I think what is likened to kind of like that California cuisine before I even moved here, but I did grow up kind of eating that way, like eating very simply. So that was absolutely an inspiration for me. Do you think like you were too early in that area? Because like now, if you look at it, there's a lot of people just before COVID, I feel like, but definitely because of COVID too, a lot of chefs have left restaurants and are doing the private, like in-home kind of thing. And and that picked up steam, but do you feel like maybe you were too early and that would have been like a whole different career path for you if it was like three, four years later? Yeah, you know, it may have been. I think it really depends on who you get as a client and where that path takes you. I had an experience, I was cooking for a really wealthy family in New York. And I'm talking like, didn't own the top floor, own the entire building, Central Park, like that kind of money. Everybody in the building is like their staff or whatever. And being a private chef is not always 
I think what people think it is, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you do get clients that are treat you like hired help and not somebody that's been training for this or somebody that has composed these special menus. You know, you go sometimes thinking that you're going to make like these magical transforming meals. And then you get there and they tell you, we like our vegetables cooked so soft that we barely have to chew them. We want a BLT, but we want the bacon burned to a crisp. And that's like your job for the day. I think like sometimes it has wheels and it takes off. And maybe I was a little early in that. But I think one of the reasons I ended up letting it go and kind of moving on to the next step of my career is because I was kind of feeling like, okay, I'm getting these jobs and I'm not getting to be as creative as I want to be. That's consistently where the money is, is the burnt bacon BLTs. And I think a lot of chefs can identify with that, that kind of go from restaurant to private chefing. You think it's going to be a certain way. And then you kind of kind of come back because you realize like, oh, like this is literally just someone's living cook. Did you ever feel like a stigma at all of being like a private chef? Or was it just it didn't really matter or like nobody really cared. I always kind of wonder because I mean, there's always like that stigma of like, if you're a chef in a restaurant that if the restaurant was in a hotel, it was like proceed as like you were not as good as somebody who opened their own restaurant kind of thing, you know? I think, yes, there definitely is a stigma. And I think, unfortunately, this is bad. But even for me, because I did like actually go through the process and work in restaurants and then I kind of swung out and I back in a certain way. I feel that the a home chef sometimes is almost not as adept in skills sometimes as somebody who's been training for it consistently. And that would be the only difference. But I guess some of the stigma that I felt was more from the client than other chefs, because I think other chefs are more welcoming than you might think. I know I've had experiences, especially with wealthy families, where they basically ask you to use the service entrance. They don't want to see you at all. They don't want to hear from you. They don't want to collaborate on the menu. And you're sleeping in, you know, a room with no windows when they have a luxury home. That was terrifying. I remember I got flown by an extremely wealthy client that couldn't tell me their real name and address before I got there. So I let my friends know where I was going, kind of. And then I basically hopped on a plane, got picked up by a black SUV. You know, I get to the place, I realized who it is. And then the whole weekend, I'm in this bougie apartment in New York thinking like, oh, okay, this is going to be a great weekend. And when they show me the room, they basically put me in the laundry room. They put me in a bedroom that was next to the laundry room with no windows. It was like a kind of almost like a hospital bed where the TV was like in the corner, but you could never really see it because it was like facing the wrong way. And they were just hosting nonstop. So I ended up cooking breakfast, lunch, dinner for three days before they offered me a full-time job because it was a working interview to perhaps like cook for them long-term. And after being asked to use the service entrance, asked to be not seen, all the dishes I made were not, you know, they wanted it cooked softer and crunchier and all these things. And and granted, that's the job, right? But it wasn't for me. They ended up offering me a laughably small salary when I got the job. And I turned them down and called my brother because I was scared they weren't going to let me leave. I'm not even going to ask who it is. I could insert any name and make a funny joke, but I'm going to let it go. It's the kind of person that technically lives in the Bahamas to evade taxes and has multiple homes around the world, that kind of vibe. So what was it like cooking for a former president? <laughs> but at some point, like you wind up working at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, right? I did. Yeah. So that was part of my like Charleston revival. So I moved back to be a private chef. And when I got there, I thought I, would, I always wanted to work for the Wine and Food Festival. So I just sent them a cold email 
saying like, hey, you know, I just moved back. This is what I'm up to. This is what I can offer you. And I had only asked to intern just because I wanted to be a part of it and see what they were all about. And then they end up giving me a job. Did you work it for like two festival seasons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for two festival seasons. And they actually like kind of let you do more than just like have a job, right? Like you were kind of actually running some stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was a culinary coordinator. So I basically built the prep kitchen from scratch, like the massive one that runs all the thousand person events. I organized all the prep teams, the recipes, the live demos. It's like running a massive restaurant of like thousands of people for a week. What was the biggest challenge with like running something that big like that? Probably the weather. It rained a lot in Charleston. And I remember one year I felt like it was just nonstop raining. So everything really needs to be loaded in. If it's not on a hand doll, you have to load it in by hand. So the weather is a huge one. Uh, Organizing the culinary volunteers. So we had volunteers that basically, let's say, I'm a chef and I'm going to cook a demo for, you know, a thousand people. Our team would prep all the ingredients. So they would have all the meats and sauce ready so the chef could come in and just execute. But I would have to get everything to that point with the team. Oh, uh, so the big famous people that come and they're just like, oh, all my stuff's already done. That's why people love going to that festival because that festival makes it so easy for you to just come in and have all your stuff ordered, done, it's there. And I would break my back sourcing literally everything. If I couldn't order it, I would find it. I would go myself. I remember there was a chef who wanted to forage for his ingredients. So I went foraging for him, like down to that. And he was a chef. Ben Shuri, who has Attica in Australia, Melbourne, I think is where he's at. He came to the festival and I was like looking for like sea beans and like fresh soil and all this stuff. I was just like, whatever you want, you got it. So what was the craziest request you ever got from like a famous chef that just kind of rolled in or like craziest like thing they wanted, like sourced or whatever? Um, I would say it was probably Andy Richter from Pock Pock. He had some really, really specific herbs and spices that he needed. And I was just breaking my back, like trying to find local growers, trying to find them myself, trying to source them. He's not the nicest person that I've ever met. You know, you think somebody is bending over backwards to do all these things for you so you can just fly in and make your food or whatever, but it was not like that. So did you do the same thing for both years that you worked there? I did. Based on your experience, do you think someone who's looking to make a career in the hospitality industry should work at least one season or, you know, one week or whatever at a major food and wine festival? Yeah. You know, I think it really primes you to just let go of your expectations on what you thought was going to happen because we would plan all year. And then, you know, inevitably something happens, something changes, and you just have to roll with it. And I think if you can handle anything like that on a large scale than working in a restaurant or any other food industry, it's like that much easier. So from there, you wind up going to San Diego. Why did you wind up in San Diego? I was kind of doing that circuit of flying um, back and forth and private chef work. I actually, I had just finished up um, a stint in LA working on a pop-up as part of the Jimmy Kimmel show with the chef, Adam Perry Lang. So I did that and I started to feel like the the connection of the West Coast. I've always loved it out here. So I decided to go ahead and move and just see how I did because I needed a change. You know, I had been in the South for a long time and 
while I love the cuisine there, there's not a lot of diversity or there wasn't at the time. Um, and I really wanted to see, you know, different cultures and without, I guess, moving to another country or moving to New York because New York wasn't really for me. So it seemed like the, na- the next natural step kind of in my career to learn. How'd you wind up as the catering manager at Greenacre Campus Point? So that's a fun story. So I've actually, I've been with Brian Malarkey since I moved here. So it's just like, from that point on, I've done different things in my career outside of, I mean, I do side projects. But when I moved here, I went to a party uh, with some new friends. And I was still trying to work as a private chef, but it's really hard to do if you don't know anybody. So one of my new friends said, hey, you should come meet my other friend. She works at this restaurant group. It's farm to table. Literally, we had there were gardens on site that the produce was picked for the restaurant, you know, local meat, local ish wine, all of that. And I thought that sounds great. So I went there and I met with Brian and a couple other people. And they said, you know, I don't know what job we have, but we'll figure it out and just say, you know, we like you. So they ended up having a job in events. And I thought, I could definitely do this. I've worked large scale events. I worked my own events as a private chef. And I thought maybe for a little while, some stability would be nice because working as a private chef and working for yourself, you're obviously um, always chasing your own leads and that kind of thing. So I thought maybe I'll settle into the West Coast for a little bit, see what it's like to work for somebody else. And little did I know it would take me on a whole new career path. So you started out like actually cooking though, and then you wound up managing essentially an entire catering team. Yeah, I went from managing one location, opening up another one, managing that, becoming director, and then opening up another one. So you're running three. There were actually four, but Greenacre had two locations. So you're running four different catering operations. Correct, yes. And you're catering anything from parties to weddings to probably anything, right? Bar mitzvahs, like whatever anybody wants to hire you guys for, right? Corporate meetings, too, were huge. So the facilities had a restaurant, they had conference space, they had a fitness center. It was almost like a hotel without rooms. It was like a really unique business model. And it was also in kind of like what is likened to like Silicon Valley of Southern California. So we have all these tech companies in the area, and they would essentially have their all-day meetings. We would cater the meetings. They would have their receptions after. We did weddings on the weekend. Bar and bat mitzvahs were pretty huge. So it was like a massive operation. I mean, we would have multiple events going on per property at the same time. When there's multiple events, are you juggling both? You have like three clipboards like stacked on each other, like you're running? At that point, as director, I had managers in place, supervisors in place under them and a full team under that. Most of the positions were on call um, other than the managers and supervisors, but it was around a staff of a revolving 100 or so. So Everything was basically covered. And then at that point, as director, I was just kind of like more on a global sense where I was operation and then checking in on the events as needed and managing the staff more so than having the client touch. So what was the biggest challenge or difficulty with running such a large scale catering operation? You know, I think a couple of things like in non-food sense, you become a therapist for your staff. When you get up to that level, it's but yeah, you basically, you know, people want to talk to you about their problems. They want to talk to you about their issues. That was definitely not something that I had expected. On the food side, uh, consistency was always a really difficult thing to nail down. I would say one thing I was proud of 
for these venues is we did an amazing job of making really delicious food, even if it was a plated dinner for 300 guests. And I think that's why we did so well, because the quality of the food was really high. And, you know, at a wedding, it's just like food is not that good. You go to a hotel and it's cold. I don't want to eat this. Um, but we set up a bunch of different things to basically ensure that our food was always hot. You know, we weren't pre-cooking it and throwing it in a hot box. We were just having like a really structured way of everything that we did. And that was a collaborative process with me and the chefs. And then I think having my culinary background too really helped me out there because I wasn't just the like director saying, hey, I need you to do this. If a manager comes to me and they have an issue with a chef, I'm able to kind of be in between and say, hey, this is why the chef did this. Okay, like we know we're not just going to sell these ridiculous things that the chefs can't make. We're going to meet in the middle. And I think that honestly really helped me in my career because even when I was doing sales, I had a deep understanding of what was possible and what wasn't and how things would look when they came out. Because of your culinary background, was it easier to like develop menus when you were doing that aspect with chefs or developing beverage lists with whoever that you had to because you know you had that knowledge or were they still kind of standoffish because they're chefs and they want to be in charge of like their own thing? Well, you know, I would say there's always kind of moments of pushback, but overall, you know, I have a lot of respect for somebody that does that. So I would never come across and be like, hey, I have the background to listen to me. I always felt like I was really, I was genuine, but I was also tactful in that I came across to a place of understanding, like, hey, I know this might be difficult to pull off, but could you consider maybe doing it this way? And like, what flavor do you think would work best? You know, I'm not trying to ruffle feathers. I'm just trying to get everybody together at the end of the day. And I personally have a really low, no ego. So I don't feel the need to be like, you need to do it this way. You know, you were obviously hired to do this. So let's see how we can get you to output your best thing that's going to make you happy. It's going to make the client happy. What was the one responsibility that you got to drop when you went from manager to director that you were like super happy? I don't have to deal with this anymore. I would say that was the actual booking of events, like the actual sales. I probably only sold one thing a month for VIP clients that I had to manage. I definitely am just kind of introverted. I like to be behind the scenes, you know, one-on-one settings. I'm great, but to have to be showing up and doing client tours and schmoozing and this and that and pretending like I was excited about someone's wedding was just not for me. Like, look, Susan, I don't think the flavor of the cake matters very much, but Can you just please sign the contract? Fast forward a little bit to, I think, like 2017 is when you took and passed the intro sommelier exam. How did you discover that? Why did you kind of get into it? What happened? So I had been kind of dabbling with wine pairings basically at the restaurant. It was kind I was working with the beverage director and I was always included in tastings and kind of learning about what wines we were replacing and why. And I really wanted to know more. And I just thought, you know, what better way than to just dive headfirst into this class. And I think I signed up like a couple months before. And I will say the test, if you work in fine dining or you work anywhere with wine, the test is probably a breeze. If you're working in a non-wine setting and you have to study for this test, it's not super easy. What was the most difficult part of the exam for you? Well, the nice part is that it's actually multiple choice, but the questions range from which varietal is not of the 13 grapes of Chateauneuf-du-Pape, or it might say, 
which is the most prominent grape in California? You know, it's like, it's like these high, high questions and these low, low questions. And some of them are really quite difficult because it's so vast. And it's not just wine. It's also testing on spirit. Then eventually, I think you take the WSET exam. Walk me through that. Like, what did you aim to kind of get out of the WSET? Like, why did you go that direction instead of maybe going and taking the certified through the court? I thought that between the two, just knowing that there was a service portion and I wasn't doing a ton of service at the time, plus the WSET for me is more educational if you want to teach, which I ended up teaching kind of like later on. I wanted to use that as a foundation to see the structure of how you learn, which would be eventually how I would teach uh, classes to staff. Do you think you'll continue on with the WSET or examinations at all? I definitely have plans to revisit everything wine related. I've taken a little bit of a break just for the time being, but you know, life is long. Sometimes it's like, I mean, I guess it's when it comes back to cooking, you don't have to go to school to know things about cooking. Wine, I feel the same, you know, just doing my own studying, teaching in the past and tasting, and it really changes your horizon. I would like to take more intensive classes, probably focusing on France or Spain or Italy, but I don't know if I'll ever go do the certified. I feel like it's hyped up. And also, I kind of feel like it's uh, like a boys club. Like the certified is a bunch of old white dudes. Like I don't need them telling me I passed the test kind of at the end of the day. Like I get that it's an old institution, but it's an old institution for a reason. I think we could do better. So with teaching, you mentioned that a couple of times. Are you doing wine classes that you're doing some teaching? Is it blind tastings? Like what are you involved with in that aspect? So in the past, especially um, at the end, 2020, when we when the f- pandemic first kind of started, um, I was teaching virtual wine classes through the restaurant list, just the basics of red, white and that kind of thing. Moving on, I was doing staff education at the restaurant. So right before kind of COVID, you wind up becoming director of events. And then shortly after that, wine director at Puffer Malarkey Collective. You were already kind of working with Malarkey. Was that like another arm of the business that you kind of transferred over to? or Essentially, it was eight restaurants. So the four that I had mentioned, and then there's also Herbin Wood, Herbin Sea, Anime and Herbin Ranch. So that's the Puffer Malarkey Collective. And we let go of the other four when COVID happened. Um, we had a management contract. So we ended that. And then I was basically retained by PMC and I kicked around and I managed anime for a little bit during the pandemic. And then in 2021, I became wine director. When you become a wine director, when you're building out the wine list, like what's your methodology? I would say that behind the wine list, I wanted to do something that was both approachable, but also something that was meant to ball out because people come to these restaurants and they want to spend money. So you want to give service to each guest in a different way. Each restaurant had a specific focus. I wanted to show people that you can go to dinner and spend $60 on a bottle of wine and it can be absolutely incredible and transformative. You don't have to always go for the, you know, 150 plus to have a special experience. And that was kind of the ethos behind what I was doing at the time. Then also making different places have specialties. So anime in particular was the place where you could go get vintage champagnes, where not a lot of restaurants in town were doing that. 
So you could go there and you could not only get vintage champagnes, but I had a whole sparkling wine list from all over the world. Sparkling, chocolinas, like that kind of thing. Elbling, really interesting, different varieties. Also bubbles by the glass, which not a lot of restaurants have more than a couple. We had six. So just trying to offer something fun and interesting and different. Every sommelier seems to kind of gravitate towards a certain either style of wine or certain wine region. What's yours? What do you gravitate towards? What is the one that like when you first got into wine, you're like, this is really interesting. And like now that's kind of like always your go-to. I would have to say Spain, like Bierzo, typically, like I love Mencia. That was really kind of what got me going. I think one of my first bottles that I thought, oh my God, this is delicious and I can't believe it's so affordable is Ultrea. Yeah, Mencia is like a Pinot Noir with chest hair. It's just like punchy and fruity and delicious. I think that whole region in Spain is amazing. And then also Chocolina, which I know is really trendy right now, but it's like that high acid, like bone dry, like great with seafood. Those are definitely like my go-tos. What wine region are you most excited about to either focus on in the future, like one that you haven't really given too much attention to, or one that you haven't explored at all? I would have to say like maybe some of the Australian Rieslings. There's just some amazing stuff coming out of Margaret River that I think is worth paying attention to. I haven't spent, um, I only went over there once. I think that especially with climate change too, it's really interesting to see grapes in different regions that maybe weren't quite there, you know, 10 years ago that now are really developing into something beautiful. Are you for or against natural wine? Oh man. Well, I will say that there's definitely for me a difference between natural wine and natty wine. Because when I think of that slang natty wine, I think of like the vinegary kombucha wine. And when I think of natural wine, I just think of low intervention wine, which is the purest and oldest form of winemaking. So for me, I adore natural wine. I mean, one of my favorite wineries that is technically natural, but you just call it low intervention is uh, Melville in Santa Barbara. I was actually lucky enough to go work there for a little bit. And I learned the winemaking process and it's extremely, extremely low intervention, which is technically natural wine. And when you sip the wine, they have finesse and like structure. It's not something that I would identify as a natural wine. Natural wine, I can get behind natty wine. I have to have the right food, the kind of way that I don't love sour beers. But if I had the right food, pretty good. So then eventually you link up with Chef Casey Goff. You guys start Lucky Cricket. Like how did how did that come together? How did you two first meet? Casey was somebody that I followed on social media because I had heard of her company, her pop-up, Wolfen Woman, and I thought this looks amazing. I gotta go to one of these dinners sometime. And then after that, she posted on her story. Would anyone be interested in doing an exotic dinner or hosting a space or something of the sort? And I just messaged her and said, hey, like, do you ever work with local songs? I would love to get involved. Maybe we could do something together. And she messaged me right back. And we pretty much just kept talking. We came up with the idea of Lucky Cricket just over various phone calls, you know, thinking like, hey, we want to do something fun and different. And we were originally going to call it Lucky Market because we wanted it to feel like a night market and like kind of the hustle and bustle um, of like Malaysia. And when we were on the phone, she saw Cricket and she said that crickets are good luck in Malaysia. So we decided to call it Lucky Cricket. I mean, you did like three or four events, right? Like last year? Yeah. So we did an event in August and we did an event in September and we were lucky that uh, we had both sold out on both which was incredible. We had a lot of support from the community. 
and then you guys are going to bring it back sometime in like the spring or summer or something like that once weather gets better. Exactly. Yeah. So we're looking at to do something this summer and Casey's food is incredible. It's a lot of flavors of South Indian Tamil that you're not used to tasting. I leave in a cocktail program with that as well. Like I did a garam masala espresso martini that was just like outrageous. Like we just do these fun little riffs. You know, we typically start with a cocktail. We run through a multi-course dinner that's all share style with kind of a flow of wine. So it's not so much like you need to eat this with this. Every wine goes, but it just goes in order. And then an after-dinner cocktail and dessert, of course. With having kind of a couple months, probably by the time you guys do your next one, it'll be maybe like six months time in between the two or something like that. With taking kind of that time off because of the weather and, and everything, does your brain kind of like think of any changes or grand ideas where you're like, oh, it'd be cool if we did this or if we cool with this, and then you just start like bouncing, like brainstorming and bouncing stuff off each other? Yeah. I mean, in our last focus, we did a dinner where one was all female winemakers. And then the next dinner, we did all Italian varietals. So looking forward and kind of an homage to how much I love sparkling wine, I'm absolutely going to do like a rare sparkling wine dinner that's just paired with the most outrageous seafood, kind of like a mega feast. If I could do a champagne tower, I would 100% do it. Like anything that feels outrageous, if I want to saber a bottle at every table or teach people how to saber bottles, that could be super fun. I think just kind of like everything that I intend to do with these dinners is to take the stuffiness out of learning about wine and having fun at a pop-up dinner when you feel like you're like, oh, where do I put my napkin? It's like, no, let's just cut the top of this bottle with a knife and have a good time. And then late last year, you wind up, taken on a, a marketing director role with Chef's Life. So what is Chef's Life? What made you want to get kind of further into the world of marketing? So Chef's Life is a line of three cooking oils that Brian formulated during COVID. He was basically doing virtual cooking classes and realizing that everybody was cooking with extra virgin olive oil, uh, which is kind of a no-no because it can't get that hot. It just changes toxic. So he formulated these three lines of oils, one is for high heat cooking, one's for blending, and then the other's for finishing, which is the extra virgin. So that's kind of what the company is in a nutshell. I started helping Brian out, just doing some recipes here and there and filming some video content. And I loved it. Um, I was having so much fun. So I decided to, you know, he needed help with that. It's a really small team. So I made the transition over there to help him and, and grow that business essentially. And it says I do marketing, but there's, <laughs> there's a whole lot more um, that comes with it. You know, I am working with our content manager. I do all the recipe development. I do the food styling, just everything in between. So I actually do a lot of cooking and styling with this job. At one point you were doing like a cooking class for like chef in a box. Was that related to this at all? Or was that just a COVID thing that you did? Yeah, so that was through Brian and with Chef in a Box, it was essentially where you could purchase a cooking class with Brian and we would mail you all the ingredients and you would cook along live. And then occasionally, if the client requested it, I would do a cocktail pairing um, and walk them through a demo on how to make that and, and kind of like educate them on the history of the cocktail itself or the liquor or something fun or do a wine tasting before live. That was really fun too. At some point, you, you did like a YouTube series, Send Nudes, but it's spelled G-N-U-D-I-S because it's like a play on the ingredient. Are you still doing that? 
So it's send nudies because like Noki is potato and nudie is no potato. Send nudies was really fun. It was something I created with one of my best friends I grew up with. Her name's Michaela. And we grew up together in Florida. We always cooked together. We both ended up in San Diego. We both ended up together during COVID. We decided to start a YouTube channel and it was basically us cooking a recipe and giving a quick lesson on what wine to pair with it. So we had a, a short-lived COVID project that was really hilarious to make. And I think it's really fun because people still tell me they watch the videos. And I'm like, how did you even watch that? Because I think it has like, you know, less than 200 views, but it was absolutely worth making. So I know you mentioned that you're kind of done with exams right now. With the court, like you mentioned, kind of mostly a boys club and everything like that, you know, they went through their whole controversy, expelled, I think, like six members, put three women master psalms on the board. For you as a, a woman sommelier, when they make all those changes, is that wait and see approach for you to see if anything actually does change? Is that enough to like get you excited potentially about like taking another exam with them down the road? Or like, what are your thoughts kind of on where that is right now? Well, I think for me, it's definitely a wait and see approach. You know, I'm happy to obviously see that. But at the same time, I don't need the certification to do anything that I'm doing. I don't need it to do my pop-ups. I don't need it to teach unless I want it to apply to maybe like a specific place to teach. But just to be able to teach, you know, through my own virtual platforms, it just doesn't seem necessary right now, you know. So I think maybe in the future, because just that kind of person that loves having accolades, probably not necessary. When you get a chance to go out to dinner, do you compulsively check the wine list, see what they have? Or do you just relax, turn it off? I check everything before, not just the wine list, <laughs> the menu, where the seating is. No, but I absolutely check the wine list. And mostly because I just want to be prepared in case somebody asked me to order the wine. A lot of people want to pick the wine with someone else's input. It just feels like a fun, special thing. And as I was saying before, like, I don't go to dinner and be like, I know about wine. Let me order the bottle. It's kind of like, hey, you guys want to do like a fun thing where you pick the bottle and I'll just give like a little bit of input because it's more fun that way. Do people still ask you if you're the host or hostess? Oh my God. Not anymore, but it certainly happens. And you know what? I'm the best host in the world. So you've been in San Diego for a while. How has the food and restaurant industry in San Diego changed since you've been there? And what do you think still needs to change? Where do you think it's headed? So I would love to see different restaurants kind of mix more into the city center. I think the variation on what exists now is leaps and bounds from what it was when I moved here. I moved here like eight years ago. And I remember thinking, where am I going to eat? And now, you know, you're spoiled for choice going downtown. But if you do go downtown, it's a very specific kind of cuisine. You either have Italian or you have like elevated California cuisine, or you might have a smaller elevated Asian cuisine or little Asian cuisine. But, you know, when I go out to eat, I would rather go to the convoy areas. I would rather go you know, get Ethiopian food or something like that. I would love to see that kind of food not pushed to the outskirts of town and kind of more centralized and brought in and highlighted because um, I feel like people are missing out thinking that San Diego is just these, like, you must go to these elevated restaurants only to have an experience. What's next for you professionally? What's on the horizon for you? Oh, wow. Who knows? I mean, 
love to take chef's life to the next level and, you know, be crushing it in that category. I really love recipe development and food styling. So working on that in my own portfolio as well, that's going to be, you know, a big focus for me in the future, kind of getting back to my own kitchen roots, which feels really, really good to cook again and to do it on my own time and be creative. And then uh, also doing some Lucky Cricket events in the summer and getting back into the wine lifestyle. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, sommelier Lauren Gay. She's the wine director over at Sueño and Tender Mercy in Dayton, Ohio. She left behind a question, what's your most memorable food experience, preferably food and wine pairing experience? Oh, man. Um, my most memorable food experience, that's a really tough one. I can Let me start with the wine experience, and then I'll think back to the food. Uh, they're not together in a pairing sense, but the most memorable wine I've ever had was at a wine shop in Santa Monica called Esther's. And I had um, a producer called Peter Lauer, and he makes a Riesling Sect, which is sparkling. So it was a sparkling Riesling. And it was from 1982, absolutely transformative. I mean, talk about tiny bubbles dancing on your tongue and bright like lemon pucker and bright. And it was just absolutely insane. I think I ate it with chicken wings and that was just a very happy day. That was like, wow, I'm going to remember this name. And that was, you know, many years ago. But as soon as I became wine director, it was one of the first bottles I added to the list. And then food experience, I would have to say cooking at my grandpa's house. He, we always had these beautiful feasts and he would hunt quail. So sometimes I would have the opportunity to cook the quail that he hunted. And even at the time being a little squeamish, you know, cleaning a quail body, it was definitely memorable and super delicious wrapped in bacon. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? And it can be anything. I would say even when your career gets difficult, what is the one thing that keeps you going? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, have you ever worked with or worked for a chef that everyone knew was an asshole? <laughs> well, considering I worked for the ex-chef of Jeffrey Epstein, I think we all know that question. I worked for Adam Perry Lang. I doubt he will hear this. He was a brilliant man, but he was very intense and not very polite to a lot of the staff. And I think that they would agree. So next set of questions, about eight to 10 of these, we ask when everybody comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who was the biggest influence on your career thus far? Oh, man. I mean, I, I would still have to say my grandfather. He's just a badass. Like, you know, every time I feel like I want to give up or I don't want to keep going, I always think that like he lived through World War II, did all this insane stuff and still made it to the top. And I'm like, all right, we got to keep going. Yeah, I just rewatched this series on HBO. It came out years ago, Band of Brothers. And it's really weird where like at the end, they're like recapping what everybody went to do like after the war. And it's like, oh, this guy lived, you know, in a small town in like Pennsylvania until he was like 96. And there was like one guy and they're like, oh, yeah, in 64, he got killed in like a car accident. It's like, you make it through like World War II and then you get taken out in like a car accident. Like that's really depressing. <laughs> What is your desert island wine? Man, there's so many. These are tough questions. I would have loved the heads up on these questions because there's lots of wines. Um, I will let me say Pierre Gemini Special Club. 
restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? So I know you're not physically working in a restaurant, but let's say restaurant you'd recommend that isn't Lucky Cricket. Honestly, this restaurant, it's so low key and the food is super delicious. It's one of those guilty pleasure type places. It's called Costa Brava and it's all Spanish tapas. They actually have an amazing Spanish wine list, but they also make sangria and it's just a little too sweet but the food is so salty it's actually quite perfect bucket list travel destination bucket list restaurant place you haven't been to you want to go to place you haven't eaten at that you want to eat at i would say the restaurant in jiro dreams of sushi would be the bucket list restaurant i want to go see chef jiro if he's there you need to know somebody to get you into that place now that's right i'm sure and traveling through japan would be the ultimate bucket list Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I think a lot of a lot of burns, a lot of fires happen. You know, there was a time where I was working the line and I was working so fast. I was grabbing a souffle out of the oven and I didn't put my mitt on and I grabbed with my hand immediately burning my entire hand and in the middle of service, uh, which is insane. And it, I wasn't the only one that that happened to, let's say. Lots of burns, lots of fires. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything, candy, fast food, whatever, that you just can't, you know, it's super terrible for you. You just can't help yourself. You know, I don't drink it anymore, but it used to be strawberry milk. I used to love that gas station, strawberry milk. What is it now then if that used to be the past, but you don't drink it anymore? This is going to sound so whatever, but I honestly don't, I don't eat junk food. Like I just don't, I don't eat it. I make up my own version at home, I literally, last week, I just made a Twix bar from scratch because I had to be able to eat it, but I didn't want to eat processed food. Wine recommendations. So I'm split these up into four categories. So $20 and under, $50 and under, $100 and under, and then 100 and wherever, no limit. Okay. So 20 and under, I would say absolutely the Raul Perez Altrea. I finally remembered the name. Okay, so that would be your 20 and under. 50 and under is next. Carboniste sparkling Albarino. $100 and under. Looking at maybe cane wines out of Napa. Normally, I'm not a big Napa person, but I love their wines because they are low intervention, so they're not like those giant oak bombs. 100 and over, no limit. I mean, I would probably say some of the vintage uh, Fidelity champagnes or Enrio. Favorite Instagram account that you follow? Oh. <laughs> oh, you know what Instagram account I love is shitty wine memes. It's hilarious. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene about him that stands out to you? If you weren't, when you were coming up through your career, is there another culinary personality, whether it was Julia Child or Guy Fieri or Bobby Flake, whoever, that you kind of gravitated towards? I watched a little bit of Anthony Bourdain and I am a fan, but I can't think of any exact episodes. I will say that I'm a huge Ina Garten fan because she just like breathes happiness. Like she reminds you of maybe like a, like an aunt at a party, you know, you come and she has all the good food and, you know, she's sneaking you a cocktail or always making sure your glass is full. Like that's what I aim to be. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Yeah. So you can find me on my Instagram at Taylor Chloe B. I'm working on a website that will actually be live probably by the time this comes out, taylorburke.com. And there'll be more information on Lucky Cricket and my own work um, in recipe development and food styling. 
Well, again, this was awesome to have you on to complete kind of the, the other half of Lucky Cricket. And you've had a career that's super interesting. I mean, when I was doing the research on it, it was just like all over. I was like, wow, this all over the place. So, I mean, there's stuff that, you know, we haven't had come up on some of the episodes with working at food festivals and stuff like that. So it's awesome to see you having success and, and continuing to be able to kind of do what you want to do and, and be in a sommelier and the wine stuff that you're involved in. So open invitation anytime. Anybody who comes on the podcast, we always leave them an open invitation to come back whenever they want. If they ever want to, no time limit. If they have 15 minutes, they want to plug a menu or whatever they're doing, happy to do that too as well. So, but definitely stay in touch and hopefully we'll be able to make it out to San Diego sooner than later and definitely want to hit up one of the the lucky crickets because the food looks amazing and, and it all just looks super awesome. So definitely that's on the to-do list. Stay in touch and hopefully we will see you sooner rather than later. Awesome. Yeah. You'll have to let me, if you come out, we will set you up at some of the PMC restaurants. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is great. Again, a big thanks to Somali Taylor Burr for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her uh, day to join me and chat about her career and kind of where she's been and where she's at now and kind of where she sees herself headed. So Again, make sure to follow her on Instagram at Taylor Chloe B, also at Lucky Cricket Pop Up and at ChefsLife.co, all on Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram too, as well. At SpoonMob, check out the website, SpoonMob.com. You can check out Taylor's website too, as well, TaylorBurke.com. Make sure to follow the podcast on whatever preferred platform you use. We're on all of them, so just give us a follow there. New episodes come out every Thursday. Uh, unless for some reason there's some unforeseen delay. But uh, last week we didn't have an episode just because we were taking care of some behind-the-scenes technical stuff. Nothing that you guys have to worry about. It was just something that uh, needed to be done in due time. So I uh, wanted to get that taken care of as we kind of move forward. So we got a bunch of cool stuff on the way, a bunch of different people, either chefs or restaurant owners, but also people kind of just associated with the edges of the food and hospitality industry too. So excited for all those episodes to come out different kind of profiles and people doing different roles within the hospitality industry. So I think it's going to be pretty eye-opening for people that maybe don't really understand what what some aspects associated with kind of how your food gets to your plate and then also kind of how marketing works and how everything's consumed too. So it'll be pretty interesting. But appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, appreciate the support. Feel free to write in too as well on the website. There's the contact portal or you can email us directly. Uh, spoonmob at yahoo.com is the email address we have set up. But without uh, any kind of other delays or any really updates, uh, appreciate everybody listening. It continues to grow and that's awesome to see. And uh, we're just going to keep kind of doing what we do for, for the next few months here. So we will talk to you guys next Thursday.